0: Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. It was an incredibly busy and tiring May in the art world, with auctions in New York spread out all over the month, art fairs in New York also occurring throughout May, and it concluded with Art Basel Hong Kong. With just so much going on in the market, we wanted to chat with a market insider to help us break everything down to see where things stand as we head into June. So in this week's episode of the podcast, we chat with Judd Tolley, an independent arts journalist who contributes regularly to art news and the art newspaper. You can also read all of his writings on his website at juddtolley.net. We hope you enjoy the conversation with Judd, and thanks so much for listening. <music> thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah, sure thing, Adam. So I think a great place to start is in New York City, where it felt like we had major auctions, or at the very least auction previews going on for almost the entire month. And if we look at things as a whole, it seems the market remained intact and is still very strong. What are your feelings about this? And what were some of the major takeaways from the sales?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the amount of art that was sold between say in New York uh, over two weeks. And which was interesting in the sense that Christie's was uh, started off with uh, some uh, single owner uh, sale, the, you know, Thomas and Doris Amon collection. Uh, Then they had the collection of Anne Bass single owner sales um, you know, all in, over those two weeks, the numbers was, you know, considerable, I think it was close to around $2.4 billion um, in terms of combined day-evening sales. And um, I guess it just shows that there's a, you know amazing amount of uh, money in the world to buy art. And especially uh, against the backdrop, at least more recently, this month of, uh, you know, the equities, markets taking a beating. And it didn't seem to have uh, much of an impact. Um, I thought it was interesting that, and I was going to mention a third uh, single owner sale and that was the second part of the MacLau trove at sotheby's and um all in with those two sales from this past november to now that came to over something like 922 million anyway you can throw out all these numbers they're huge um, That said, it's kind of interesting that there were many instances of high-value works in both uh, contemporary and in the Impressionist modern field that they sold, but they really sold towards the low end of expectations as opposed to the high end or above the high end uh, where you would see that going on um, in the uh, various sales of um, younger artists, Sotheby's now sale, um, Phillips, of course, which has always been um, very big on showing emerging or about to explode uh, secondary market artists. And um, and those were, I mean, Sotheby's, they had a, a white glove sale. Um And it's uh, it's sort of hard to uh, correlate in terms of the numbers. Um, I'll give you an example or a couple of examples, uh, looking again at that uh, sotheby's evening sale of they call it the now or now, NOW. Um, and um, this very young artist, Anna, Wyant. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It's uh, W-E-Y-A-N-T. At any rate, she was the lead off lot in uh, both Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips evening sale in that specialty group, which it's quite a hat trick. And this is a, a Young artist who recently joined Gagosian, and um, well, the one of her paintings, uh, "Falling Woman," uh, that was estimated at 150 to 200 thousand, made uh, 1.6 million all in, including buyer's premium. Uh, you know, I mean, go figure. But um, that said. She wasn't alone. There are many young and not young women artists that did phenomenally well during the several weeks. In fact, kind of an unprecedented number. Uh, and it's interesting when you see an artist that maybe you're not that familiar with, and I'm not, but um, Christina Quarles, for instance, um, uh, sh- her work. Uh, popped up at uh, Sotheby's, the same sale that I'm talking about, and then I'll stop. Um, but a painting of hers, a recent painting, Night Fell Upon Us, Upon us, that carried an estimate of 600, 800,000, made 4.5 million. So you kind of wonder, well, what does that mean? Or like, is every painting that artist makes worth that? No. But you kind of wonder how That huge gap between primary market prices, which sometimes, not always, but sometimes estimates are based on, especially with younger artists that haven't been at auction much or at all, um, how that correlates with these, uh, you know, prices that are multiple, multiple times over the high estimate. You know and that could be, you know, that could be a scary thought or a warning sign or who knows what. But it'll be interesting to see if this carries on through the next couple of seasons.
0: <clears throat> it's funny you called it a hat trick—a single artist leading off each of the three auction house evening sales. I can't recall seeing anything like that in the past. Really, so many of these artists earlier in their careers are achieving results that are rather stunning. What are insiders and veterans of the art market saying about this phenomenon that we're witnessing?
1: I mean, of course, Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it depends, of course, who you talk to. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of speculation going on. And uh, uh, if you want to call them flippers or I won't say collectors, but um, you know, people that got in early on a certain mar- on a certain artist's career, bought work and then um, you know brought it back to market without going through the gallery, of course. And um, just to back up for one minute, I did want to give credit uh, to a blogger who pointed out the trio of uh, Wyant paintings, and that was uh, Lee Rosenbaum of. Uh, her blog is called Culture Girl, which is like "girl" <laughs> with an L. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, and as, as she pointed out, and quite astute, that from previous eras of art market, you know, speculation or uh, buoyancy or bull markets, that you know, sometimes not always, but usually. You know, something happens afterwards that goes in the opposite direction. I mean, it's not like uh, exactly like cryptocurrency, but um, yet. But, you know, I think in this whole sort of panorama, there is some maybe some, you know, cautionary signs. I mean, that, (coughs) excuse me, that said, when a work that's no question, fantastic such as the uh, top lot at the uh, Anne Bass sale, which only had a dozen lots. Um, and that weighed in at, you know, like over $360 million. But the uh, Monet Houses of Parliament made uh, close to $76 million. And that was one of the outliers in terms of the estimate was 40 to 60. And it's also interesting that the top price during all of those auctions, various owners, single owners um, wound up taking place at Phillips, which has got to be a first for that house. And that was with the um, uh, huge uh, Basquiat painting uh, from 1982, that made um, 85 million all in. And um, (laughs) that's pretty extraordinary, I would say. Um, And not just because of Phillips being able to get that uh, work which was um, untitled and uh, it was estimate on request and it was backed by a third party, Um, it was a huge price and it was uh, being sold. I mean, they announced it, that it was uh, uh, the uh, Japanese um, uh, uh, magnate uh, uh, Mazawa who sold it. And um, it had a great history going back to being bought by Adam Lindemann, uh, at a auction in London where he paid, uh, something like, uh, I think it was around four, 4 million pounds. Um, I, I don't want to be quoted on that price. Um, anyway, um, at the time that was a big price. So, I mean, Bosque is just, wow. But at the same time, and again, perhaps this is a note of caution or a note of, well, it's not every Basquiat that comes up, but that Christie's had two major Basquiat works. I mean, a bit unusual in the sense that one of them was, um, it was a triptych on panel uh, dated 1982, which is the primo year for Basquiat's very short career. A portrait of the artist is a young derelict and that was an estimate on request. I think it was in the region of maybe 30 million. And um, that was, uh, and th- I'm sorry, this, this was uh, two, two works that were at Christie's and they were withdrawn before the sale. Because obviously it seemed there wasn't uh, any interest that Christie's could determine and uh, I guess wisely withdrew them. Um, The other one was a a wood construction that had a a lower estimate of four to six million C-plate three. So, you know, one has to, you know, look carefully at, um, you know, what's coming up and what it means and how many there might be. And uh, if it's too aggressive, you know, the market might find it so.
0: One thing you did mention initially is the softening in the stock market, and there's been increased economic concern outside of the art world, just speaking more generally, with declines in the stock market, increasing inflation, geopolitical risks, of course. Did we see that creep into the auctions in any meaningful way, or has the art market been immune to that thus far?
1: Well, I mean, it makes great headlines that in, you know, the midst of, you know, you know, bordering on World War III and, you know, the oil crisis, everything. Um, the art market seems this, you know, spectacular, you know, immune creature. Um, but I believe if you were looking at past sort of trends downward in the art market, they tend to uh, react slower uh, than, say, the real estate market market. Um, so, so we'll have to see. I mean, in terms of uh I think if you were holding valuable art and you looked at these recent results, you might, you know, seriously consider, you know, putting something great up at auction. You know, you'd probably want a some sort of guarantee, which all the houses seem to be, you know happy to uh make a deal on and um yeah i mean it's um it it almost seems like (laughs) i mean not a mirage because these numbers are real but um i think the whole auction engine from the pandemic that forced the houses to go live stream, to really uh, bulk up their digital prowess and reach. And I think it's been quite effective in terms of um, finding new buyers, finding buyers that are not in the sales room, that perhaps never even saw the work that they're bidding on in person uh only you know seeing it on a screen i think those are all indicators that you know there's there's certainly depth to the market and certainly um uh new new wealth going after you know evening sale works i mean not to mention (coughs) day sale but i mean if you were actually standing in the sales room, for instance, at Christie's during any one of those evenings, they have these big screens <coughs> on the, you know, say the back wall with showing, you know, specialists in Hong Kong or London or Paris. And then you're seeing where the bids are coming from online in New Mexico. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like a different, um, sort of uh, presentation and another kind of theater.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of listeners haven't been to the auction room since before the pandemic. And we watch these sales online and it looks like a game show almost. Just how much have these rooms transformed in real life?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, the audiences, the live audience in the sales room are quite small. Uh, And I mean, you know, maybe 200 people or something like that. And there's so much like overhead heavy lighting equipment and these kind of robotic cameras that can scoot around the room to get different angles. Uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's, um, I mean, the, you know, the perfect, I mean, and I'm not criticizing him in any way, shape, or form, but Oliver Barker at Sotheby's is, I mean, he is like, the ultimate game show host. I mean, he's just so polished and smooth and uh, effective. Um, And I think, you know, he's gotten a lot of experience in these last two years by doing these live stream events and also in the the sales room. But, you know, it's very different. There's no, you don't get that kind of excitement of people rushing in, getting seats, standing room only. Uh, It's very uh, controlled and uh, more antiseptic, I would say.
0: So I'd like to shift away from New York City for a little bit because there was another major event that occurred in May in the art market, which was our Basel, Hong Kong. And I can't believe it's still the case, but Asia still feels very isolated from the world and, of course, the art world whether it's auctions or art fairs or any other kind of in-person experience, what did you hear about how that fair went and how strong the Chinese market is at the moment despite being so physically isolated from everyone else?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a little difficult. I mean, from my vantage point, because I wasn't there, I wasn't on the ground, so I don't really know. But certainly uh, the impact, uh, continuing impact, of COVID and various, uh, you know, rather draconian lockdowns in terms of ability to travel um, and you know attend things like that. I mean, it there were this year uh, at Art Basel Hong Kong of the hundred and thirty uh, stands, um, galleries, etc. Um, I believe it was seventy five were. What they refer to as satellite uh, galleries. In other words, the uh, the actual dealers or you know principal directors were not there, which I think is fairly significant. I mean, of course, now anyone can sell. Uh, you know, the if they know the name of the client, uh, or they can you know somehow reach out and you know send the jpeg all the information they have viewing rooms uh, virtual viewing rooms all that but in terms of you know uh you know don't once you want to sort of be face to face with someone like uh david zwerner or at least one of the directors and that's that wasn't the case there that said i've i think the sales were uh decent uh, perhaps decent plus, plus. Um, and it's a smaller, you know, footprint now. And it's just a question of, uh, given, uh, you know, the might of mainland China and its impact politically uh, on Hong Kong in terms of, you know, virtually no free press Um, it's a, you know, it's not like what it was uh, five years ago as this sort of, you know, breathing democratic sort of metropolis that was, um, you know, fantastically uh, successful in terms of, uh, you know, being a magnet for wealth. Um, So I I would say um, (laughs) the other thing, is that it took place in May and usually this would have been March. So now you have this very short gap between Art Basel Hong Kong and Art Basel Basel. So that again, you know, isn't, um, I don't think ideal. I mean, we'll see, I, I I believe, you know, it'll be different in, in Switzerland because as the Art Basel people have, uh, communicated already that Switzerland uh, has relaxed uh, restrictions regarding COVID. You don't have to show your um, uh, you know, vaccination papers. You don't have to be pre-tested to get into the country, et cetera, et cetera. So that should be uh, a little more of a lively playing field. Um, I mean, you know, It could be that the Asian uh, Art Basel Hong Kong might resemble now a bit more of what it was like before Art Basel took over that art fair in its previous, um, you know, iteration, where it was primarily Asian-driven, Asian galleries. um, And there, you know, it's it's a wide field
0: well, hopefully this isolation will come to an end soon. It'll be really nice to be able to travel to China and for Chinese collectors and galleries to be able to more easily travel outside of the country. And, you know, I was joking with someone who's a director at a gallery in the U.S. who was virtually exhibiting at the fair. And by that, I mean, they had a physical booth at the fair with the art there, but no one from the gallery was there. And they were lamenting that they were going to have to pull an all-nighter from their home to be able to, be available to FaceTime with anyone who shows up to their unmanned booth, and that's really not an ideal way to have an art fair and to have significant dialogues with collectors and people visiting the booth. But anyways, on a final note, I did want to ask you about some major changes to auction regulations in New York City. I think they flew under the radar because of the busy May we had in the art world, but What are some of these changes and how might they significantly impact the auction space and how auctions operate?
1: I mean, essentially uh, New York city and the New York city council um, which, you know, governs regulations, you know, across the board, you know, in terms of commerce, in terms of everything. um, Basically uh, a week before the auction started, uh, eliminated regulations on auctions so um, you know you you could you know it's a laundry list of things but for instance um you can't uh in the past there were regulations about you can only uh say bid uh up to and not beyond uh the reserve price in terms of, you know, what they call chandelier bidding. Um, You had to uh, notify uh, if any lot carried any sort of um, financial guarantee, either by the auction house or by a third party that had to be designated uh, on the catalog page or, you know, on the screen and with lots of you know glossary and explanations in the back, of course in small print. But yet you you were able to tell that there were x number of lots that were backed by guarantees. And uh, I mean it, it's it's I think the whole uh, sort of message uh, as it was uh, crisply described by a um, Art world attorney here in New York, who was quoted in the New York Times article, and he said, um, With no regulations, there are no more rules of the road. Uh, That was uh, Thomas Danziger. Um, So, which is frightfully uh, true. I mean, in terms of whether the auction houses are going to then simply in New York just not post that kind of information or start. You know, playing games, more games behind the scene uh, remains to be seen. Um, in that article, Christie's and spokespeople for both Christie's and uh, Phillips said that they weren't going to change anything in you know going into the sales. I mean, we'll see. There wasn't a con- there wasn't a indication from Sotheby's, but um, you know the. Um, I'd be curious, really, to know what the the message is behind that from the, uh, you know, quite liberal, um, but um, perhaps the politicians in local government uh, just don't care about, you know, what, you know, wealthy people do or how they're protected or if they need to be protected. But I think they do.
0: Yeah, I read some of the coverage on these changes as well. And Two things struck me that I found to be really interesting. First, the auction houses weren't lobbying for these changes. Normally, you would think if all of a sudden a highly regulated industry, or at least a regulated industry, was becoming far less regulated, you'd think the participants in the space were the ones pushing for that change, but that wasn't the case here, so that's really surprising. And second, it appears it was broad-sweeping changes in order to remove regulations from small businesses many which were severely impacted by COVID, and somehow the auction industry fell into that. Um, you know, one change that I recall was that you could now have reserves that were higher than low estimates, which is not something you could do in the past. And so you have that in addition to chandelier bidding above the reserve now being allowed. I mean, there are certain rules that the art world just needs in place to ensure that participants, or most participants at least at auction, actually know what's going on in the sale room. And maybe that's why auction houses announced that they wouldn't be implementing any of these changes, at least in the short term, just because it would cause so much havoc in the auction space. And perhaps because they haven't embraced these changes is why we haven't read about this that much. Because I do think there would be an uproar if all of a sudden these changes were being implemented by the auction houses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, in terms of, I mean, this was, uh, what, 22 years ago, but um, there were, you know, that major price-fixing trial involving um, Christie's and Sotheby's that took place in federal district court here over um, uh, price-fixing issues, and as a result, in part, A lot of new regulations were brought to bear on on the market. But from my point of view and probably others, um, it's not something eliminating regulations doesn't exactly instill confidence in someone um, participating in that market.
0: Exactly. Well, we'll just have to see how all this plays out. Judd, thanks so much again for coming on to the podcast. We really appreciate you helping us break down all of the major art market activities in May. If our listeners don't already, you should definitely check out Judd's writing, which can be found in the art newspaper or art news, as well as your own website. What's the website again? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's juddtully.net.
0: Great. Thanks so much again, Judd. Thanks, Adam.